0: I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 19. <clears throat> and we're going to be looking uh, at verses, uh, the second half of verse 8 down through the end of the chapter. Uh, just a quick reminder of where we've been. Uh, David... Uh, was driven out of uh, Jerusalem, he was uh, put into essentially exile in the wilderness by his son Absalom, who was attempting a a coup to take over uh, Israel, and uh, we saw last time that David's army defeated Absalom's army, and Absalom was killed, and now what we're seeing in today's passage is David is on his way back into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's coming back out of exile, so to speak, out of the wilderness and coming back into the city, coming back to the palace to be reaffirmed and reestablished as the rightful king. So listen as I read to you from chapter 19, beginning the second half of verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house? when the word of all Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring the king, bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army, from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul with his 15 sons and his 20 servants rushed down to the Jordan before the king And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zeruiah answered Shall not Shammai be put to death for this Because he cursed the Lord's anointed But David said What have I to do with you You sons of Zeruiah That you should this day be an adversary to me Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel And the king said to Shammai You shall not die And the king gave him his oath And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, and he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I shall go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? "'Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. "'But here is your servant, Chimham; "'Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you.' "'And the king answered, "Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. "'And all that you desire of me I will do for you.' "'Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over.' And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. Then the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. and We thank you for so preserving it that we could have it here in our midst today. As we read it, as we reflect on it, would you help us to understand what you want us to know from your word? Open our eyes and help us to see wonderful things from it. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of your great grace to us, help us to be motivated to live in that grace as the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. as I say, not as I do. I can tell from the smiles on some of your faces that that's a familiar statement that you might make from time to time. Perhaps you say it to your children or your grandchildren or your co-workers or your spouses or your friends. Do as I say, not as I do. It has the sense of, I know what is right and I can tell you what is right, but I don't always do what is right, so You best follow what I say and not what I do. We also have this statement from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or to put it another way, follow me as I follow Jesus. Now that has the sense of imitate me. Imitate my life. Do what I do. As I follow the Lord Jesus, do as I say, not as I do or follow me, do what I do as I follow Jesus. Which is it? Well, of course, both statements are true. And as uh, we have seen uh, through our study of Second Samuel, David actually exhibits both of those statements for us on a number of occasions. There are plenty of times when David would have to say to us, do as I say, but not as I do. Knowing what is true, knowing what is right, but failing to do that truth. But there have also been times that we've seen where David not only knows what is right, He not only could tell us what is right, but he actually does what is right. And in in that way, he serves as a model for us. So for today in this passage, I think we can say that David does a fairly good job of saying to us, follow me as I follow the Lord. In fact, I think what we're going to see today is that David gives us a wonderful picture of how God treats his people. And we're also going to see through David and through some of the people that he interacts with of people who have experienced the grace of the Lord and then give us an an example or a model of what it looks like to live in that grace. What does experiencing God's grace mean as we seek to live it out in our lives? So that's what we're going to look at here in these two in this passage. These two things, the picture of God's grace received by God's people. And then the pictures that we get of what it looks like to live in grace as a response to God's grace to us. So first of all, a picture of God's grace received by God's people. Now you can actually see this a couple different ways here in the passage. The first is the beginning part that we read in verses 9 through 14. Remember the context again. David was victorious over the army of Absalom and Absalom was killed. David is now leaving the wilderness. He's leaving the exile, as it were, that he was in. And he's beginning to make his way back into the city of Jerusalem. He's making his way back to the palace. He is going to be reaffirmed and reestablished as the rightful and true king. And as he does that, the people who had opposed him begin to wonder how he's going to act. You notice here, just as a point of information, there are a couple different terms that are used for the people of God. One is they're called Israel and the other they're called Judah. Now, in general, what he's referring to are all the people who had been a to Absalom, who had been against David, who had betrayed him and turned their back to them. But also we know that these terms mean Israel, meaning the northern tribes of Israel. And Judah being the southern tribe, the tribe that David himself came from. And what we're going to see here in these verses is that the way that David treated these people who had betrayed him, who had remained loyal to Absalom, the way that David treats them gives us a picture of how God treats us. Remember, these are the people that had turned against David. They had betrayed him. He was the rightful king and david would have been right he would have been just if he had punished them even if he had been if he had put them to death it's kind of like sinners recognizing that they've sinned against the lord god almighty realizing that they deserve judgment from him knowing that it would be just if god were to judge them but i want you to notice that is not what david did in fact he actually did the opposite Instead of giving them the judgment that they justly deserve, he gave them grace. Now you can see that several ways here. First, David initiated contact. These, the people were wondering, they were arguing among themselves, what's David going to do? He's on his way back, he's defeated Absalom. The one, we had, the one we had pledged our allegiance to, the one we had anointed to be king over us, is now out of the picture, and David's coming back. What is he going to do? How is he going to treat us? And David reaches out, and he initiates contact with his brothers in Judah. He didn't have to do that, but that's part of showing us his grace. He initiated contact with him. And notice that when he did initiate contact, he doesn't tell them that he's going to come in judgment, but he reminds them about the connection that they have. Look at the end of verse 11 and verse 12. As he's speaking to Israel, to Judah, as he's speaking to the people of God, he says to them, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to this house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king David is reminding them of the relationship that they have together of the connection that they have he's not coming to bring judgment upon them but he's remembering that these are his brothers and sisters and so he's coming to them in the context of a relationship with them we also see David exhibiting grace to them and how he in what he addresses in verse 13 he tells Amasa, he tells the people in Amasa that he is going to make Amasa the new commander over his troops. Remember, Joab had been the commander of David's troops. Amasa had been the commander of Absalom's troops. And so here David is extending the olive branch once again. He is showing grace to them once again by saying, even the commander of the army who is opposing me is going to be the commander of my army going forward. And then one last way that you can see David extending grace and and showing them grace is, is in verse 15, verses 14 and 15. We're told that David swayed the heart of Judah. And then he called them to meet him in a very specific, at a very special, and a very significant place. Did you see where they were to meet in verse 15? It's in the town of Gilgal. That's a town we hear a lot in the Old Testament. It was the location where the Lord renewed the covenant with his people after they had been wandering in the wilderness and they were about to enter into the promised land. God gathered the people at Gilgal and he said, we will now restore and renew the covenant between me and you. And we see that happening again in 1 Samuel As Saul was crowned king, Samuel, the prophet, gathers the people again at Gilgal and says, We will once again renew our commitment to the Lord here in Gilgal. As David was calling the people to meet him in Gilgal, he was making a statement. I am coming as the king, not with judgment, but I am remembering that we are brothers and sisters. And I am remembering that we have a commitment to the Lord. And we are going to renew that commitment as we come to one another and to the Lord as we come together here in Gilgal. In all of these ways, David is giving us a picture and giving the people a picture of what God's grace looks like to God's people. Now you can see it a second way here in the passage as well. You can see it in the way that David deals with this man named Shammai. It's in verses 15 through 23. Excuse me, 16 and, uh, beginning in verse 16. And Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Now, it hasn't been too long ago, but maybe long enough, that you may not remember this man, Shammai. We actually saw him not too long ago in the story. David was being kicked out of Jerusalem by Absalom. He was leaving. And this man, Shammai, starts following David. And as he followed David, we read that he began to curse David and to yell at him. And not only that, he threw dirt on him and then threw rocks at him. We're told that eventually David went along and and Shammai was on a ridge above and just... Hurling rocks and insults and curses down on the king of Israel. That's who Shammai is. But now, David has been victorious. David's coming back into Jerusalem. And so Shammai recognizes he better go make right with the king. And so he hurries down to meet the king. This time, not hurling rocks and insults but bringing words of repentance and asking for forgiveness. Now, some scholars question the genuineness of Shammai's repentance here. The story continues and it's told later in 1 Kings that there may be some reasons to think that maybe Shammai wasn't being completely genuine here in what he's saying. But regardless of that, recognize the fact that King David could have let his servant Abishai Execute Shammai on the spot. That's what we hear is the question in verses 21 and following. And remember, when we heard it before, when Shammai came and threw rocks and insults and curses at David, it was Abishai who also asked David, can I execute him on the spot? And both times David says, no. But it would have been just. It would have been just for Shammai to be put to death on the spot. This was not just A man cursing another man. This was a man cursing the Lord's anointed, cursing David, the king of Israel. But I want you to notice that instead of David reciprocating with judgment that would have been just, instead, he promised Shammai that he would not die that day. You will not die, he said. Not only did Shammai not get what he deserved, judgment, He also got what he didn't deserve, life. Again, David is giving us a picture of how God treats sinners who turn to him in faith and repentance. It is a picture of God's grace that is received by those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question that I would have for you is, do you know this grace? Do you know this grace? Listen to how the Bible describes it. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Do you know this grace? If you don't know this grace, if you're not a Christian, you're not one of... God's people, you've not experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then come to the Lord in faith and repentance. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have your record of sins washed away forever and be given a new record of righteousness. The righteousness of God credited to your accounts so that you are declared just and righteous. Know and experience the free and abundant, never-ending grace of the Lord. But if you're here or you're online and you do know this grace, you, you do know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one of God's people, then never grow tired of finding out how broad and long and high and deep is the love and the grace of Jesus. Never let yourself think that grace is just for those when they first become a Christian. It's just for those who first put their faith in Christ. Grace is just the milk. Give me the meat. Instead, use the God-given means of grace to grow in your understanding of the love and the grace of the Lord. Never stop. Never stop plummeting the depths of God's grace and love to you in Christ Jesus. So David, David gives us a picture of God's grace received by God's people through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, something that can never be earned, something that is given to us freely. But secondly, I want you to see that God's grace in our lives is not just about our status before our God. God's grace in our lives is also meant to motivate us and to empower us that we might live as he wants us to live. In fact, I would suggest to you that God's grace to us and the gospel is the most powerful motivation for us in pursuing godliness. Remember again what we heard earlier in our service in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. It is God's grace that trains us and that motivates us and that empowers us that we might live as God calls us to live. Or what Paul says in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. How much should you forgive others? As much as God in Christ has forgiven you. God's grace to us in Christ is to become the powerful motivator that we might pursue godliness and forgiving others. We get several pictures of that here in the text. We see several pictures of people who have received uh, loving kindness and grace that then live that grace out. In their thoughts and their actions. The first is if we go back to Shammai. And again in verses 15 through 23. We've already seen how David showed grace to Shammai. But I want you to think about how costly that was to David. Shammai was a descendant of Saul. David's arch enemy. And everybody had at least seen or at least heard Shammai and how he had treated the king how he had disrespected him, how he had been insubordinate. By simply forgiving Shammai and promising that he wouldn't die, David would have been looking weak to his enemies. Others would have said, oh, David's a pushover. You can treat the king that badly and you can still get away with it. Potentially putting David and the entire kingdom in danger. But notice that David isn't concerned even whether Shammai's repentance is genuine or not. And he wasn't concerned about whatever cost it might be to himself if he were to forgive him. David understood how much he had been forgiven by the Lord. He remembered his adultery. He remembered how he had murdered Uriah and other soldiers as well. He remembered how he had been a failure as a father in his household. And he knew that the Lord had forgiven him much. And so he responded with this radical grace. So how about you? Do you have a sense of how much you've been forgiven by the Lord? Do you realize that you've been forgiven by the Lord for your sins to a far greater extent than you will ever be called to forgive anybody else. Again, Paul in Ephesians 4, "Forgive one another as Christ as God in Christ has forgiven you." That doesn't mean that it's easy. It might cost you something. It might even cost you greatly, but that is the call of being a disciple of Jesus. Are there people that you need to forgive? If so, let Paul's words from Romans 12 uh, echo in your ears. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Uh, we see another picture of somebody living in this grace as a response to God's grace and loving kindness to them. As we come to Mephibosheth and Zeba in verses 24 through 30. Now, apparently the word was getting out. David's on his way back and he's in a great mood. He's forgiving people, he, he is being gracious, and so people started rushing down to the river in order to interact with the king. And so here comes Mephibosheth, or Mephi, as I'm going to refer to him for the rest of the sermon, and his servant Ziba. Now remember what had happened with these two and David. David had been leaving Jerusalem, he had been fleeing Jerusalem, he had been driven out of of his palace, he was going into exile by, by Absalom's hand, and the people who were loyal to David went with him. And at one point, David looked around and he said, where's Mephi? Remember, Mephi was the grandson of Saul, he was the son of David's good friend Jonathan. And when Jonathan died, he had promised that he would take care of Mephi. And so he invited Mephi into his home. He had since adopted Mephi, let him eat from the king's table. He was adopted into the royal family. But as David was leaving, and as David's faithful followers were going with him, he looked around and he said, where's Mephi? Mephi's not here. And we're told in the story that eventually Mephi's servant Ziba showed up. And David asked Ziba, where is your master? Where is Mephi? And Ziba told David that Mephi had switched allegiances. He had switched sides. He's not with you anymore, David. He's with your adversary, Absalom. Well, now David had been victorious. Absalom was dead. He was coming back to the city. He would be reestablished and reaffirmed as the rightful king. And so Mephi and Ziba realized they needed to come to David and to make things right. And when they did, we read here in the text that David asked Mephi very quickly, why didn't you show up? Why didn't you come with me? Mephi got to tell his side of the story and basically what he said was this, Ziba, my servant, tricked me. I'm physically disabled and I needed help to follow you out of the city and to go. And I thought he was going to bring me a ride so that I could go with you. And instead, what he did is he used it for himself. And he went to you with wonderful provisions. And and, and he told you the story that I had turned and now was following Absalom. But he betrayed me and he lied to you. We're told that David rather than listening to them go on and on about it, just basically said, listen, I don't need to hear anymore. I'm going to split the land that I had given to Ziba. I'm going to split it between the two of you for you to share. Now, I want you to reflect for a second on how Mephi responded. Mephi had already experienced the grace and loving kindness of David. David had brought him into his own family. He was caring for him. He was feeding him. He was taking care of him as part of the the royal family in the palace. And now David came to him and said, Matthew, where were you? Why didn't you go with me? And as he explained it, I want you to notice he didn't make any excuses. Look again at verses 27 and verse 28. The end of verse 27, he, as he's explained what happened and he tells him that, that Ziba had tricked him and Ziba had basically lied. He goes on and says this, uh, uh, the, my Lord, the, at the in, uh, middle of verse 27, my, but my Lord the King is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord the King. But you set your servants among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the King? He didn't make excuses. He simply pledged his allegiance to David and said, David, you do whatever you think is best. And David then split the land that he had given to Ziba that was rightfully Mephi's. And even when he did that, notice what Mephi says, give it all to Ziba. I'm just glad that you're home. Now, I need to tell you that the commentators are pretty much split about Mephi. Half of them think that he was just trying to save his own backside. That he wasn't really being genuine here in these words, and half of them think that he was. But but I think that we should take Mephi at his word. And one of the reasons for that is what we see in verse 24. As Mephi approaches the king, what does he look like? This is a man who is in mourning. This is a man who has been grieving. This is a man who said, My king, my surrogate father, so to speak, is being sent into exile, and I haven't been able to follow him, but I'm going to live as if I'm in exile until he comes back. So he didn't care for himself. And look at the description. Anybody that saw Mephi would have known what was going on. He probably smelled awful. And he was doing it because he was making a statement. I'm allegiant to my king, King David, and until he comes back, I will be an exile here, even as he is there. And even just his words in verse 30, after David was going to give him half of the land, he said, David, I'm just glad you're here. Give the land to Ziba. I'm not worried about that. Give the land to Ziba. I'm glad that you are home. And Nephi here is giving us a picture of how someone who has experienced grace and loving kindness should respond with humble gratitude and thanksgiving. Even if you don't get everything that you want, Nephi surely didn't. Even if it feels like it might be unfair, he expresses humble gratitude and thanksgiving. So how about you? As you have experienced the grace and loving kindness, not of a king, but of the great king, King Jesus. Is your life in response characterized by humble gratitude and thanksgiving? Or is it more characterized by bitterness and anger and discontentment? Of always feeling like you get the raw end of the deal. That life isn't fair. You see, in response to God's grace to you, do you respond with the kind of humble gratefulness and generosity as Mephi? And understand that when you don't, you're showing that you're taking God's grace to you for granted. You're forgetting how much you've been forgiven. One last picture here in the text of Someone showing and living grace in response to God's grace. It's in verses 31 through 39. Another man comes down to meet the king. This man is a man named Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. And we're given some descriptions of this man. Notice he's an elderly man. In fact, it says that he was a very aged man. He was 80. Now I'll let you decide if that's a very aged age or not. But according to the text, he was a very aged man. He was 80 years old. We're also told that he wasn't able to hear very well. And his taste buds were dull. He couldn't enjoy life's simple pleasures like he used to be able to do when he was younger. And we're also told he was very wealthy. When David... And David's army were about ready to go fight with Absalom. And and the army of Israel, they went, as we saw at the end of chapter 17, to the city called Mahanaim. And while they were there, they got rest and they got provisions and they got refreshed. And one of the benefactors there in Mahanaim that helped David and supplied David was this man named Barzillai. And notice Now Barzillai is coming to David and the first thing that David wants to do in verse 33 is to reward him. He says to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Now, that's a very simple statement, but think about all that would be included in that. To go with David, to back to Jerusalem, to be back into the palace and and, and to be provided for by the king of Israel. But Barzillai kindly declined his offer. He said, David, I don't want anything from you. I haven't done anything that I've done in order to get a reward from you. Just let me go back home and die in peace. And he even went so far as to suggest that David pass his kind offer on to somebody else. This man named Chimham, maybe the son of Barzillai, maybe a servant, we're not told. But what we're getting here from Barzilai is another picture of a man who understood God's grace, who understood the loving kindness of the Lord, and he was responding with a life of humble generosity. And so, beloved of the Lord, I would ask you, how about you? How much has the Lord shown you his grace? How generous has the Lord been to you? The more that you truly understand the extent of God's grace to you, the more humble and generous you must be. The Lord has given you everything that you have, what you have, your material possessions. You do realize that that's not just in your possession because of your hard work, because of your deserved salary, or because of a family that you happen to be born into. Everything that you have is the Lord's and he has given it to you that you might be a good steward with it, that you might be humble and radically generous with it and to do so in response to the radical generosity that you have been showed by the Lord God Almighty. Think about it this way. So often we compare ourselves to one another, to our peers, to our colleagues, to our co-workers, to our fellow church members, and we size up whether we feel like we're wealthy or not, based on how we think other people are doing. But that's not really a good way of looking at it. All of us live in arguably the wealthiest country in the world and among the wealthiest generation in the history of the world. Compared to the rest of the world and the rest of history, we are all wealthy. But that doesn't even matter. Whether we have been given a little or a lot in order to be good stewards with, we are still called to be generous in response to God's generous grace to us. We ought to have the mindset of Barzillai. Why should the king bless me? I'm not looking for anything in return. I simply want to use what the Lord has given me that I might honor him and bless others and participate in what he's doing in spreading the gospel and making disciples. So how are you doing? Are you only generous as long as it's still comfortable for you? Only to the extent that you don't really have to feel it? Or do you give generously and sacrificially in response to the extent of God's grace to you? The extent of God's blessings to you? So in response to God's grace that we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ... We are called to live in that grace. God's grace is meant to motivate us to more Christ-likeness. You know, some of the best illustrations come right out of the Bible. And one of those illustrations is given to us in the Gospels. It was a day, perhaps a day like any other day, and Jesus was invited over for dinner by a Pharisee. Now, you remember, Jesus and the Pharisees, or at least the Pharisees, didn't get along with Jesus too well. In fact, they often were looking for opportunities to trap him and to trick him. And so this probably was some kind of a trap that was set up. But he was invited over to the house of this Pharisee for dinner, and so he went. And as dinner was getting ready, a knock came at the door, and there at the door was a woman. And the only thing that the, the way that the woman is described in the text is that she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. Almost certainly this was a prostitute. She had heard that Jesus was having dinner at this Pharisee's house. And so she went to honor him and to worship him. She brought some very expensive ointment. And as she saw Jesus, she fell to, to, to Jesus' feet and she began to weep. And as she wept, the tears of her weeping fell upon Jesus' feet and she used her own hair to wipe His feet clean. And then she took the, 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 the ointment that she had brought and she anointed Jesus with it. And as she did all of that, everybody in the house was scandalized. Especially the owner. We're told that the owner thought to himself, you know, if Jesus is who he says he is, he should know who this woman is. She should not even be allowed in this house, let alone to be touching him. Jesus knew what everybody was thinking. And so he decided to turn the opportunity into a teaching time. Simon was there and so he turned to Simon and he asked Simon this question he said Simon suppose that there was this bank and this bank lent money to two people to one the bank lent a million dollars and to the other the bank lent ten million dollars and when it came time for those loans to be called and for them to be paid back neither of them could pay the loan back And so the bank did the unthinkable. The bank forgave and canceled both loans. Simon, which of these two men do you think appreciated and loved the banker more? And Simon says, well, I suppose it'd be the man who had the larger debt. And Jesus said, you are exactly correct. Then Jesus turned to the woman and everybody else in the house and he said this. He said, when I came into this house tonight, no one offered to clean my feet. No one greeted me with a kiss. No one anointed me with oil. But from the very moment that this woman arrived in this house, she has not stopped washing and kissing my feet and anointing me with oil. And yes, her sins are many. But she has been forgiven much. And so she loves much. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are no less sinful than that woman. Our sins are many. And if you are in Christ, then you have been forgiven much. So deepen your understanding of the extent of God's grace to you, of His loving kindness to you through Christ. And then live in that grace. Have God's grace to you motivate you into a life that is living a life for the Lord. A life that is forgiving others to the extent that you've been forgiven, even if it's costly to you. A life that is, in response to God's grace, living with humble gratitude and thanksgiving, even if life feels unfair. A life that recognizes that everything that you have is a gift from the Lord. And so you desire to be humble and radically and sacrificially generous. Let's pray together. Our Father, we again thank You for this portion of Your Word. Thank You for showing us Your grace, reminding us of how You've been gracious to us. Father, never let us grow tired of plumbing the depths of Your grace and loving kindness to us. Help us to grow in our understanding of the depth of Your love. And Father, as we see the love and the grace that we've received from you, we pray that you would help us to be people who live in that grace. That in response to it, we would be people who live as you call us to live. And that you would do this, Father, so that your glory might be extended and also that your people might be strengthened in their faith. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.